Welcome to the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series, back with another gem from the archive. In 2017, Jeffrey Nutter gave a reading from his then-new collection, Cities at Dawn, at Hotel Sorrento, in partnership with the Hugo House in Seattle. Please enjoy this reading by the author in celebration of his now-new collection, Giant Moth Parishes, out now from Wave Books. I was a young man in my youth. I was thoughtless as a mushroom or a starfish, as thoughtless as a mushroom is as thoughtless as Martin Heidegger is as nonplussed by his own unfollowable thoughts, as thoughts that grow somehow into ideas, ideas that flower into an assembly of starfish, beautiful but implacably inscrutable. Even he doesn't know what they are or what they mean, or even if they mean. What is he? To ask is to be an egghead. To not ask is to be a blockhead. To ask and be declined is to be heartbroken, is to hate through the long night, even while asleep, and keep hating until the broken parts achieve a fine granularity, the glittering red-orange, the paper blue, and through the heartbreak, the knobs and the blue blocks of a kind of dream, wilderness suggested by the rounded pieces of the jigsaw puzzle you had been puzzling over but left unfinished. It had given you a headache. These were earthly outgrowths of a welcoming texture and softness. These were some of the hard, cold pleasures of youth, the sticky, bulbous plant, far more delicious than the roses, and tenacious, tenacious. My father was wounded in the Great War. He lost his face in a fierce battle. A flanking maneuver, a counterattack, a mission of forlorn hope. But which great war? One of many wars, one of many giant wars, one ordinary titan war. And my father kept a glass cabinet of wax noses in his study and changed his nose several times a day. He had lost an eye in an offensive, a night operation, a minor skirmish, one of many small loose parts that are pulled together and called the Great War. Now he had a glass eye. One eye was glass and the other was pewter, though the pewter eye had been his eye before the war, before the bayonet charge, the reckoning barrage. These are among the things he carried. A steel jaw, a diamond tooth, a prosthetic limb, an arm to be precise, a hook for a hand. And he kept his eye, his tooth, a hook, a pair of pinking shears, and the rubberized semblance of a hand in a wooden case with small compartments, like a box of chocolates from the country where he had fought in the dikes and earthworks during the land war, the one between the sea war and the sky war. And he had children too, besides me. There were children, legitimate children, and two or three false children. There were bastards, doppelgangers, changelings, there was a wax child, and a glass child, and a fire child, though the last was not a child at all, but merely a fire with which he lit his pipe. And he had a mandrake root, a mandragora, and a suit of armor made of bone, 
we who consisted of yet of all our original parts, were strangers to you, or so it seemed. You had a gun kept on the wall near the head of a deer bearing very large antlers, and we were there crouching down in flower beds, watching you remove your flowered shirt, and we stood tall among the presences. I don't want to write a poem. Oh boy. I don't want. This is called The Fable of the Man Who Played a Lute with His Mustache. Which I guess is me. I don't want to write a poem about a shoe store in Queens. Not even one about a guy there playing a lute with his mustache. It is his mustache. Yet these were among the things we can pretend to have had a hand in choosing while not knowing where the treasure of their striped row lie. Along the miles of blue stones, there, submerged so far below the star of day. And all the people in the books you've read, the ones you've finished and those you set aside, reopen the book, and there they are, no less real for having been forgotten. For if you could read your own life, you'd read one long sentence full of nested parentheticals moving with the stately grace of a wish, always seeming about to be fulfilled? Are you imaginary in the long flowering vine of grass that creeps up to the door of a metallic room, and the strange paths, vibrant paths, through the fruit-bearing trees, seated no doubt when you were a child, or even before, as that time you had walked another wooded path that led you to feral cats in a junkyard for old submarines, one of which a cat, small and calico, gentle and seeming, nearly tame, and not a submarine, that seemed to lead to rust-eaten bridges over dried-up rivers or bronze in great bronze shadows of sunlight. A fable. One day, a man told a bird to go fuck itself. <laughs> It was a cedar waxwing, apparently. And I only heard this second hand. The bird flew by and knocked the man's enamel snuff box out of his hand and onto the street where it shattered like an egg, was the way he put it. Then his story changes. It turns out it really was an egg, speckled modeled with blue and rose-colored markings, small spots, dots, a slightly glowing pink tinge, a living egg that changed color according to how it was held up to the light and turned in the hand. Look, this is not a fable from Aesop or La Fontaine, nor a bright gloss on a Heraclitus fragment. A man argued with a bird, just one more meaningless entanglement in the series of entanglements that is life, and in the story, as it has come down to us, we're not told whether this antagonist was a tanager or warbler or just a simple sparrow, but we do know, and past all doubt, that this bird did not argue back, nor did it go fuck itself. And the man lived on forever in his rage, which became a small, coal-black robot, no bigger than a rivet, dipped in wood tar creosote, Brutal. <laughs> oh, oh, <man. laughs> Is that man me? 
Okay. The first robots. One person made of snow, another rain, a third bunches of grass, and yet another discolored metal pipes welded together with puffs of steam issuing from the joints. You can help me to discern what they're saying at this, their meeting of the minds, where the significant others are just long plumes of bending grass, charged with blue-green current, where the significant other was one name in a roll call and a sheaf stuck together like the cold leaves of sea lettuce. In order to keep the laughter of the children ringing, we'll watch them turn the others against themselves, depleting themselves of all significance, until they are become so like one another in the winding room of spinning and weaving from which the storm can be heard tearing through a flat iron Versailles. Cylinders and discs, their spinach-colored hair, and the green flax grown on Gold Mountain. And then there is rain and snow, and grass that they had mistaken for people, or men who had taken for flax, threshed from seed, to recapitulate. They wanted to prove there was some hidden significance in men, that they might turn against them for their own ends. But who were they? The first robot was a man they made of grass, and snow and rain, and stuck all together with some kind of glue and they stood by thunderstruck as it pulled up stakes and lumbered off like a grain silo on stilts. Let's all put our heads together. No, closer still, until we're singing, until we're one singing thing, a barbershop quartet, ridiculous, but harmonizing some old-time American popular song, Beautiful Dreamer, or Ezekiel's Wheel, or Shaker Elder Joseph's Simple Gifts. They called Winston Churchill the bulldog. With a gleam of amusement, the air grew denser when he entered with a gleam of amusement. Watch how the, liber watch how the libertarians spruce up the palace of the sun, enforcing the grand social law that had you had bought into. When I ate the goofball, I was brainwashed until glossy as a carrot. You have marshaled your various talents and even combined them with others. You have washed up like a pebble from the sea under the sun and foam, cochineal, half bird, half man, half alive, half aloft. Now deliver your oration, a child of modern children, children of married cities, where you see yourself tall as conceived by your double among the clouded relics, star maker of the earth, watchmaker, truing, a star wheel. These were some of your talents. These your compulsions. Convolvulus scattered in sunbeams, seemingly, or at least seemingly for the moment, to be all you would ever know, as if you were one among them. Well, Bill, you, this is a conversation between William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Kind of. Well, Bill, you did wish to speak in a tone that would seem inviting to all, to the people, the workers, the policemen and union men, and the teamsters, even children, the small children who haven't yet learned to speak, even the yellow insects that connect like twigs to the segmented branches, even the one we call loser with a capital L, whose ego is an egg that makes a distant shape on the horizon. He too will get the gist of the poem. You tell them Sam and Bill will make them that way, all American, as a pigskin or a rabbit, 
made of beeswax foiled in gold leaf layered in platinum leaf layered in plutonium leaf. A cloud is like a giant amoeba or even a mothball just hanging there. Apples start as apples, but in no time seem they become non-apples, which is really to become anything at all. It is to become everything, or rather anything, that they are not, that we are not. And I will refute this, this elitist nonsense. But how? How do we speak like American poets, friendly with the cats and dogs of discipline, atomic men bum-rushed by silence in the gridiron, Three cheers for the grapes of tranquility. My philosophy of poetry. Look, um, listen, what is the dew? Even there, where we enjoy the finches of the grove and the blackbirds singing in the aviary, its nearness echoes. The weird sunsets make cities small and toy-like for beekeepers. All liquid friends, surveying the buildings on the pages of the book of miniatures. Drop the green drug in the pond and the light rushes upward. And then its great embracing love focuses one beam of light on the waterfalls that lend a continual hush to the confused democracy. If in a leisurely way you flake paint chips from a green terrace railing that flutter down into kudzu tendrils woven stiff and gray across and around some broken kitchen appliances, then you might verily, and even if only for a self-accusatory moment, join ghost hands with a spirit sibling in Chernobyl, where a bluebird is singing on a branch, a two-headed bluebird. We came upon the complicated clock. I don't know why the, kind of the, some of the language, some of the rhythms of Trump's speaking is working its way into my mind. Let's see. It's quite a powerful speaker. Did you say sad? Did you, did you read my poem? Oh. You take it boys. We came upon the complicated clock. There it was, vibrant as a seance and as cryptic, a rarity. It seems the clockmaker wished to tell us something about time, wished to tell us by showing us. But showing us what? A trove of unguents made from lavender and other crushed leaves and resins, and the scent of rain from the street stones in Utrecht, the scent of home. Here is a thing to measure time by. How well can you show us what you were thinking the time you were asked not to touch the earth in Labrador, or swimming a canal beneath fireworks? You tell it bending an experience with topology, a half-inflated tire floating in space and turning in on itself, transversed by shimmering coordinates. Look, the clock, or whatever he was trying to show you, is a total wreck, and it has been wrecked and wrecked again, and he is the one who wrecked it. Beware and be wise, he has wrecked it. Common misnomer. The mother of pearl is the inner layer of several sorts of shells. It is not the mother of pearls, as the name might indicate, but in some cases the matrix of the pearl. It is a misnomer, as is the frontispiece, mosaic gold and a foxglove, as is honey soap, Japan lacquer and salt of lemon. 
You were bending the truth however gently when you claimed that this was yet another deja vu, that you had looked into a forest of bees identical to this one, then charged ahead on the green man's path and ended up as usual among strangers and solicitors. The sleeper cell was just a bunch of sleepers held lovingly in one another's arms in an enchanted chamber strewn with bright green fragments of a giant insect. If stones could grow grass, grass could perhaps give birth to men, men to beasts, and so on, there would then appear some strange new kind of symbolism, one more akin to your way of looking at objects, where all things become themselves, but more so, or at least your way of thinking things over, yawning as they tumble by in the stream, objects, box-like, unwieldy as box kites. Here is some biographical information. The nimbus clouds, the lunar caustic, the storms floating in above the petrified forest, then a burst of cedar wax wings, gray and pale yellow. Furthermore, I earned an F in trigonometry. I ate window pane. I tried boiled cactus for hallucinations, and minute stems accomplished the miracle of sudden blossoming in bewildering solutions of grapes and eels and deep forest truffles. And I was served burnt applewood soaked in sweetened brine, and I slept in class, and I slept so deeply that I dreamed. And my friend Wayne wrote a comic book about it while I slept. And in this book, the Buddha stood tall in front of the suburban temple for Laotian immigrants. And Wayne, you had me saying, faithful to the thing that I had told you when I dreamed, that he looked taller when angered, taller than a blade of grass. And we played a game called the stratagem of interlocking rings, which always seemed to end in stalemate. These are some among the common misnobles. One more. In any shallow ravine along a train track, anywhere in these United States, one can always find, without fail, a discarded mattress slumped amid the desiccated bracken. Why? It would seem that sleep-wise, we are an ambivalent nation. The sky is gray-green above the monumental spiral-guided gas tanks, above the gray stone breakers for basalt that slump uncertainly amid debris, temples that have gone to sleep. And while you're reading John Needham's history of China, turn to the part on building stanchions for suspension bridges, or the myriad towers of wind farms, or the chapter on posterity, and how it lengthens away from you as through a haze gray and turning golden of futurity. Farmers and workers look out over glittering fields, and even as far as where the curve of the earth becomes visible, some will be transported to some provincial prefecture and made petty bureaucrats or pressed into service on distant battlefields or roused awake on a shining green peninsula. The sea, bathing their feet, cold as a chiming bell, in the wide free air. The geography of seawalls is just one chapter in that book, as is the tract on sacred enclosures. It's a strange volume.
and even strange among the strange things of the living forest, the short-winged birds of passage, the wheat ears and the martens that flow into grottos, tangled in vines, and out again on their way to the sky. You have taken its spirit to heart, and though delivered in the dark similitude of a dream, it opens like gates and passageways around you, revealing an enormous realm of overtness. The golden wheat and barley, so important to men, appear in the distance where all things meet. Thank you very much. That was Jeffrey Nutter, reading from Cities at Dawn, published by Wave Books in 2016. Find links to this book, as well as his new collection, Giant Moth Parishes, and Nutter's essay, A Note on Concordances, at the link in the description for this episode. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics, and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Music is I Recall by the Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC. Thank you.